Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 17 of Sauron Defeated, and tonight we are going to finish the book. Now, my biggest struggle tonight is going to be keeping straight what I'm talking about, because by this time, we're going to be talking about, like, you know, the fifth or sixth time through the drowning of Anadune, so trying to keep them all straight in my head is going to be a little tricky. So my hope is that I'm remembering which bit each each of my the passages, my slides that I wanted to talk about come from. Uh, so I may have to pause and look it up to make sure I'm remembering correctly, but so long as I can handle that, we'll be all right. Okay, um, before we start, uh, just a couple quick announcements. First, um, this is our final week of our fundraising campaign, uh, which means that this coming Saturday, we are having the big uh, finale event. Uh, so starting at noon Eastern time, I'm going to be hosting our our webathon, our campaign finale. There will be uh, a bunch of different things going on. Uh, I hope that you'll join me for that. It's going to be a really good time. There's going to be trivia contests. There's going to be our uh, drawings for our big prize giveaways and uh, and all that kind of thing. Uh, so uh, so that's good. Let's see. Um, hmm. Is everybody getting audio okay? Want to make sure audio is coming through? Should be coming through. Think it's coming through, but want to double check here? Okay. Yes. Yes. Good. It is. It is coming through. Good. Yep. Oh, good. Tomas, great question. Um, uh, uh, how can we set up Amazon Smile to donate to Signum? If you go to, I think it's smile.amazon.com, um, it'll give you a, a, an option like a search bar to, uh, to find the, uh, uh, Charity to which you want to uh, have your Amazon Smile proceeds going uh, towards, so you can um, uh, you can do. Uh, you should be able to search and find Signum there, uh, and uh, and then it'll it'll kind of lock that in. Uh, so yeah, great question. Okay, so as I said, end of the fundraising campaign this weekend. Uh, campaign event, final event that's going to be a lot of fun. In the interest of that, also remember, if you haven't done it yet, you should enter our drawing. So just send an email to donate at signumu.org and uh, uh, say that you want to be entered uh, in the drawing um, because I love giving stuff away to folks and I want as many people as possible to have a fair shot at that. So um, I hope that you will uh, uh, remember to do that. Okay. And let's see. Good. All right. Um, the other thing, of course, this past weekend, uh, we had Middle Moot. We had another wonderful regional moot. Uh, that's two now this season that we've done. Uh, New England and then uh, the Midwest. Um, really great time out in Iowa this past weekend. Uh, and uh, good to see a lot of folks there. Uh, always fun to connect with people. Um, it was, uh, as, uh, Robbie Park said there, she said, you know, driving up from Kansas city, she was feeling like, you know, middle mood is like going to a family reunion, except you want to go. Uh, it's, uh, it's really fun. So, uh, had a, had a great time, uh, excellent presentations, good discussions, and just great to, uh, to see folks and, uh, get to hang out there together. So, um, if uh, I hope that you will consider coming to a regional moot uh, near you, it's always uh, just really wonderful to be able to get together for a weekend and hang out with people who get all your jokes and uh, who understand where you're coming from. Um, so 
anyway, our next regional moot coming up. Remember, I had said that uh, Magnolia moot was supposed to be coming up next. We've we've decided to postpone that. Uh, it's it's going to make things much simpler. Um, so we're going to postpone that until the spring. So we're going to do Magnolia moot in April, which will give us much more time to get everything squared away with the venue so we can have that all set. Uh, so that's going to be good. Um, besides which, actually, I think that... Uh, Charlotte in the spring is going to be lovely, actually. Uh, I think I will be glad to go somewhere warmer uh, by then. Uh, So that'll be fun. Which means that our next moot is going to be Bay Moot uh, coming up in November, uh, uh, a little bit before American Thanksgiving. So um, if you are in the central California area, anywhere in reach of the San Francisco Bay Area, I hope you'll consider joining us there uh, for, um, um, for... Baymoot in November, uh, and then there'll be a pause until uh, the spring moot season comes around, uh, and we're going to have what is it going to be? It's going to be Tex Moot and LA Moot in February, and then <clears throat> Sunshine Moot in March, and Magnolia Moot uh, in April. Um, so lots of uh, really fun stuff coming up uh, this fall and this spring. Yeah, Carrie, exactly. The Magnolias may actually be blooming uh, when we go down to Magnolia Moot this year. So I was actually kind of thinking about that when we were postponing. I'm like, you know, that's kind of, um, it's kind of really think about, you know, the South for Halloween. Exactly. You know, so this, this will be nice. Um, Anyhow, looking forward to, uh, uh, to, uh, to all that stuff. So I think that was it. I think that was the last thing I wanted to say, other than, of course, to remind you about our fall fundraising campaign. Um, if you haven't had a chance to make a donation, I hope that you'll consider making a tax-deductible donation to Signum University uh, to help us continue as we uh, you know, move forward into our exciting new chapter here, uh, which we're going to be beginning, as I was discussing in the State of the University Address. If you haven't seen the State of the University Address, uh, which is on our YouTube page, I sure hope that you will soon, uh, because... Uh, it contains a very exciting reveal of plans for Signum for the next five to ten years. Um, so it's kind of a it's kind of a big deal. So I, I certainly hope you uh, uh, you get a chance to uh, uh, to see that and learn a little bit more about what's coming because it's uh, uh, it's going to be it's going to be super fun. It's going to be really exciting. So I'm really pumped about it. All right, um, let us. Uh, move on into Sound Defeated because <clears throat> we're finishing the book tonight. That's what is happening. Okay, so we had gotten through, uh, basically we got through the second version of The Drowning of Anajune, so we did the first and the second versions uh, of The Drowning. Um, and we, um, so he kind of, there's a, se- there's a third and a fourth version, which he kind of combines together, Right. <clears throat> with just a few notes. And there are only a couple things from there that I wanted to touch on. Then he gives those three sketches, right? Um, uh, which Tolkien called the theory of the work. And I want to spend a little bit more time uh, on that uh, to try to understand where Tolkien was coming from, uh, as Christopher Tolkien explains to us. So, um, first, the... Uh, uh, the first bits from the last versions, the third and fourth versions of the drowning of Anadune. And when all was ready, he himself set sail into the east. And this is uh, Arf- Arferazan now, right? Um, 
Now, one thing that the the thing that struck me, the reason I was drawing attention to this is because we didn't get this full description, right? In the earlier versions of the drowning of Anadune, all we had was him summoning Sauron and then Sauron sailed to Numenor to him, right? So this is uh, this is the first time we get this version of the story. And when all was ready, he himself set sail into the east, and men saw his sails coming up out of the sunset, dyed as with scarlet and gleaming with red gold, and fear fell on them, and they fled far away. Empty and silent under the pale moon was the land when the king of Anadune, changed to the king of Yozayan, set foot on the shore. For seven days he marched with banner and trumpet, and he came to a hill, and he went up and set there his pavilion and his throne, and he sat him down in the midst of the land, and the tents of his host were laid all about him like a field of proud flowers. Change two, were ranged all about him, blue, golden, and white, as a field of tall flowers. Then he sent forth heralds and commended Zigur to come before him and swear to him fealty. And Sauron came, right? Okay, so uh, the I I just I don't have too much to say about um, uh, about this um, passage exactly. Um, I just really really liked it. We, again, we haven't gotten this before, and one of the things that I think that we can see just one of the elements of this passage that's so much fun is the majesty of the Numenorians, right? Um, you know, we got a lot, we were kind of told about their power before, like, oh yeah, you know, they got really powerful and whatever. Um, you know, that was, uh, again, something we were informed of, right? Um, and we know, you know, and we could sort of deduce it, right, from the fact that, um, uh, from the fact that Sauron came when he was called and all that. Um, but remember, the primary emphasis there was Sauron's deceit, right? He came there with, you know, for his own purposes and immediately began to conquer the place, right? Remember, there were even some versions in which he was, you know, he was like doing signs and wonders in the harbor as soon as he arrives. Uh, so it was more about like the invade, you know, like basically that uh, um, Arpharazan opened the door uh, for, for, uh, for Sauron, for Zigur, right? Um, and he entered in and then like everything started to go downhill real fast. Um, here we get the shift around to really emphasize this is the remarkable power of the Numenorians. And of course, the way in which we get the, you know, very, very impressive military invasion of Middle-earth in the east and the cowing of Sauron, uh, you know, who has set himself up as tyrant of the, you know, of the entire continent, right? Um, the way that that presages the, the, the attack at the end, right? The, the, the parallel that that establishes uh, for our Pharazon's invasion um, of Valinor. And, I mean, okay, so probably the force of the Numenorians isn't strong enough to just make Manway surrender the way that Sauron surrendered. But keep in mind, it's actually, um, uh, it's actually not that far from it, right? I mean, that is what Manway does is kind of similar. Indeed, a little bit parallel, right? Um, he doesn't submit himself to Arpharazon, of course, but he doesn't fight him either. Um, he lays down his stewardship, right? And leaves it in Iluvatar's hands. Um, so 
anyway, I, I, I really, really liked, um, the, um, uh, the, the addition of this eastward, this, this eastward, um, expedition, uh, as a setup for the westward expedition and really accomplishing more than anything that was in the earlier versions to establish just the, the awe inspiring power uh, and majesty and arrogance of the Numenorians. I, I just, I loved this paragraph. I also loved the fact that Christopher confessed that this was the moment that really sort of stuck with him most. You know, he remembers as a young man hearing his father read him this passage and that this, this image of the, you know, the tents and pavilions of the Numenorians uh, as a field of tall flowers uh, stuck in his mind to such an extent that it enables him to date the composition, certainly, right, of the text. Like, that's, uh, that was really fun. Um, so Tony asks, do the Numenorians actually understand who and what uh, Sauron is? No, not necessarily. Tony, of course, one of the things that we've seen throughout the drowning of Anadune um, is uh, like a, a certain degree of, uh, of you know, some, some larger or slightly smaller degree, but still significant degree of confusion, right, about, um, about that. Um, I mean, down, of course, from the first version in which the, they didn't even understand the difference between the elves and the Valar, right? So the finer shades are a bit uncertain. And every time Sauron is introduced, he's introduced with uncertainty, right? Um, you know, like what, what, uh, what is, where did this guy come from? Is it Melkor himself, or excuse me, Meliko himself, or is it, uh, is, is, is it somebody else? Is it, you know, like, you know, is he a guy? Is he a spirit? Um, they don't know who or what he is, but it's clear, uh, that he's, um, that he's a big deal. Um, yeah, Tony, there is a lot of, uh, good alliteration, uh, in this, uh, uh, this is a, this is a passage that really, that really flows for reading aloud, right? Um, it's very stately. Yeah. Um, okay. Continuing on we have this new emphasis in uh, the uh, Amandil character's speech to his son, right? The reply of Afanuzir, Arbazan, who will later be Amandil, uh, to Nimruzir's question, would you then beray the king, was expanded to a form approaching that in the Akalabeth. Yea, verily, that I would, said Afanuzir, if I thought that Amman needed such a messenger, for there is but one loyalty from which no man can be absolved in heart for any cause. And as for the ban, I will suffer in myself alone the penalty, lest the Eruhin become guilty. Um, this idea of the higher loyalty, right? Um, not, um, not just that it's... Um, it's not just that they're opposing Sauron and, you know, the evil that is being done. Um, the sense of, like, we owe our highest loyalty to the Valar under Iluvatar, right? That is one of the things, and Tony, in a sense, this kind of comes back, in a sense, to your question, right? Um, one of the things I think that we can see here is a much clearer sense in which the Eruhin, um, you know, the, 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 the good guys, right, the faithful... Um, 
are kind of perceiving more accurately the situation, right? They are, um, uh, they understand the role of the elder king, right? They understand Manwe, excuse me, Amon's position, right? Um, and so this idea of, you know, there is but one loyalty from which no man can be absolved in heart for any cause. Um, uh, and I'm not saying that that's the loyalty to Manway. I mean, I think that the one loyalty from which no man can be absolved in heart for any cause is the one to Iluvatar. But again, the fact that they can perceive um, the way in which he's parsing all of this stuff, sort of phil- philosophically and theologically, is definitely at a different point uh, than we saw earlier on. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, Tony. Yeah, I know that the Erochin means the children of Eru, exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. More. You must fly from fair Amathane that is now defiled and lose what you have loved, he says to, in the same speech. He's saying this to his son, the Alendo character, which is changed to, you must fly from the land of the star with no other star to guide you, for that land is defiled. Then you shall lose what you have loved. Um, notice the way in which this is bringing together the two themes that we've been looking at with the, uh, you know, the survivors of Numenor, right? All the way back from the Notion Club papers, all the way through this whole section, we've been seeing um, the initial emphasis on exile, right? Banishment. Um, But we began to see in The Drowning of Anadune a little bit more of an emphasis on deliverance, right? That they perhaps in response uh, to, uh, what's his name? His name keeps changing, so I keep forgetting it. Afanuzir or Arbazan, um, in response to his prayer, uh, that maybe, you know, uh, his son and their people are being preserved, right? Um, Sure. But notice here the way that these two things are being blended together, right? Um, Amathane that is now defiled. You must fly and lose what you have loved, right? Then you shall lose what you have loved. That's the thing. He changes his phrasing, right? He adds the business about flying from the land of the star with no other star to guide you. But the thing that remains constant is you shall lose what you have loved, right? And even that, you know, Again, it's not all the way back to that sense of exile that we saw in the Notion Club papers, right? It's not quite all the way back there. Um, there's that. There's 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 the loss, right? The lamentation uh, for Numenor, which is gone. Um, but um, both both of them, right, um, emphasize the defilement of the land of Numenor, right? New, like yes, you're losing Numenor. Numenor's already dead, right? What's happening here is not like the sudden death of Numenor. It's the burial of Numenor, right? Um, This is the point at which it is now clear Numenor cannot be recovered, right? There is no, there can be no returning. There can be no redemption of Numenor. Um, You know, they're, uh, they're calling it. Right. You know, they're uh, they're 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 filling out the death certificate uh, for Numenor, Um, the culmination of this loss. This has been an ongoing loss of what they have loved. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Stephen, it does sound 
like Lot's family fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah. The difference, of course, is the is the connection, right? Um, Lot's connection, Lot and his family's connection with Sodom and Gomorrah um, stems only back from the previous chapter, right? When, you know, he and Abraham were dividing up which way they would go, and Lot's like, oh, I want to go over there, right? Um, so there wasn't a really close connection between him and that land, whereas, of course, we, we see that uh, very clearly in the words of both father and son here in this exchange. Um, but yeah, I mean, but, but I agree there is a, a very similar kind of shape uh, to that there. Yeah. Um, yeah, Tony, I, I think that we can see like the way in which kind of curse and blessing are being brought together, right? You know, Tony says they're exiled from their people, uh, but it's also like amputating a diseased limb. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's not, um, it is more like amputating a diseased limb. That's a, that's a good image, right? It's not that like the sudden trauma of losing a healthy limb, right? It's, it's different than that. It's not less traumatic. You still, you're still getting a limb cut off, right? So in one sense, the trauma is the same. Um, but at the same time, it, it does, it's, it's, it is an ending and an ending which preserves, right? Rather than, um, uh, mere loss, right? I think it's, it's a, it's just, Interesting to see the kind of emotional complexity of this moment uh, as it's been developing through these revisions. Okay. Now the summit of Mount Minul Tariq, the pillar of heaven, in the midst of the land was a hallowed place. For there the Adunaim had been wont to give thanks to Eru and to adore him. And even in the days of Zigur it had not been defiled. Therefore many men believed that it was not drowned forever, but rose again above the waves, a lonely island lost in the great waters, if haply a a mariner should come upon it. And many there were that sought after, that after sought for it, because it was said among the remnant of the Adunaim that the far-sighted men of old could see from the Minul Taruk the glimmer of the deathless land. For even after their ruin, the hearts of the Adunaim were still set westward. And though they knew that the world was changed, they said, Avalonia is vanished from the earth, and the land of gift is taken away, and in the world of this present darkness they cannot be found. Yet once they were, and therefore they still are, in true being, and in the whole shape of the world. And the Adunaim held that men so blessed might look upon other times than those of the body's life, and they longed ever to escape from the shadows of their exile, and to see in some fashion the light that was of old. Therefore, some among them would still search the empty seas, hoping to come upon the lonely isle, and there to see a vision of things that were. Okay, so this is the bit you may remember um, in uh, sections 49 and 50, uh, where uh, Christopher gives us a much fuller version because this was uh, uh, one of the more significant rewritings in version 3 and 4. Um, So... We have, of course, we start with the firm statement that the pillar of heaven, uh, Minul Tariq, right, the mental tarma, as it will later be called in the Akalabeth. Um, by the way, side note, um, I have to admit, I got a little bit frustrated with, like, when Christopher kept, like, quoting the Akalabeth and stuff. I mean, it's like, okay, like, I was already thinking of the Akalabeth in my head, but I, I, I didn't like the fact that he kept coming in and explicitly contrasting and 
talking with Tithia Kalabeth because we've not gotten there yet, right? I'm like, Christopher, wait for it. Wait for it, right? You've already mentioned earlier on that the Akalabeth isn't going to be compiled until years later, right? So wait until we get there, right? You know, we're, you know, he's asking us to compare, like, how things are represented here compared to how things are represented in the Akalabeth. But I'm like, spoilers? We don't even know how the Akalabeth, like, we've been reading through, and we don't know how the Akalabeth is being compiled yet. So I kept wanting to, like, skip those bits. I'm like, stop it, stop it, spoilers. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, sorry, personal complaint there. Um, so the idea of the sanctity of the pillar of heaven Right. And the important fact that it remained undefiled even in the days of Zigor. You'll remember that he did have that first impulse for Zigor to come and set up his temple dome on top of the Minotaric, right? For him to come and have one of Sauron's first accomplishments be to defile the holy place, right? But he pretty quickly moved on from that. That didn't even make it to like the final version of version one, right? He, he changed that halfway through the paragraph, remember? Um, when he first wrote that. So uh, he's long had this impulse to keep the pillar of heaven um, uh, 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 sacred, right? To keep it whole and holy as well. Um, in the second version came the idea that from the peak of uh, of the Minol Tariq, you could look out to the west and see whatever it was you were seeing, and they never seemed to be quite sure or to agree completely on what they were seeing. But anyway, it was Avalone, whatever exactly that was, or whatever exactly that means. Um, uh and yes, Tony, exactly. These are the Adonaiic names as opposed to the Sindarin names. Again, that's a trend that's going to happen later on, right? When he does the Akalabeth later on, one of the primary things that we will see, one of the differences, if you have been holding the Akalabeth in your head as you've been reading this, one of the things that you will notice is that when he comes back and does the Akalabeth again later on, he's going to bring back a lot of the Elvish names uh, and uh, the reintegration between Elvish, uh, you know, the, the uh, Quenya, uh, uh, Sindarin, um, but especially Quenya, and also uh, uh, the Adonaiic, right, is going gonna, is gonna to be a major part of what is happening in the Akalabeth. Um, but again, we don't know why or in what circumstances, so... Um, but anyway, definitely uh, the the drowning of Anadune is all about the Quenya, right? Especially, of course, we were t- talking, that was the number one difference between the first and second versions, right? The second version comes in when he's really begun to work out Adonaiic, uh, and he's really able to sort of think in that and, uh, uh, you know, give all the names uh, there instead of just sort of slightly bastardized versions of the Elvish names like Melico and, and, uh, uh, and Manaway, right? Okay. What was I saying? Okay, right, yeah. So, Pillar of Heaven. So, in creating this post-downfall, like, the post-downfall world, we have some familiar elements, right? The desire to see once again into the West, the searching for the surviving peak of the pillar of heaven, which remains as an island in the middle of the ocean. Let's call it, let's call it a lonely isle, right? 
so that that will be confusing. I love Christopher's comment that uh, uh, Tolkien appeared to be uh, desiring to create confusion or even uh, perhaps to speak more accurately, to emulate confusion, right? Um, that uh, the people who are writing these stories don't have a le- really clear... They, they, they know the phrase, the Lonely Isle, right? And they don't seem to be 100% sure what, is, what, that, uh, what that phrase is actually meant to attach to. Um, but, uh, okay. Avalonia's vanished from the earth. So, so, but, but we have this like philosophizing, which we haven't had before. Avalonia's vanished from the earth and the land of gift is taken away. And in the world of this present darkness, they cannot be found. Um, I know a couple of you have been commenting on the sort of biblical feel, uh, throughout this, you know, uh, a bunch of this stuff. Um, I, to have you know, I can't help but notice like Bible phrases that keep kind of floating through, and um, uh, the world of this present darkness is definitely one that kind of um, you know makes my uh, makes my 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 King James antennae quiver, right? Because that's a f- famous phrase um, uh, from the New Testament. Anyway, and in the world of this present darkness, they cannot be found. Yet once they were. And therefore, they still are in true being and in the whole shape of the world. Okay, so if they were, they still are in true being and in the whole shape of the world. So they really exist. They don't just exist as like an idea or something, but they they, they really exist and they are in the whole shape of the world which means it's still possible to get there, or at least to see there, right? This is not just the longing for the straight road. That's part of this, right? But notice they're not even trying to get to the straight road. They're trying to get to the point where they can see, right? They can just have the vision of things that were, right? So you'll remember that there was this passage in the second uh, version, which sounded like longing for Raymer's version of time travel, right? Um, and once again, that idea seems to be connected here, right? They want not just, it's not just like the desperate seeking for the straight road, like if only we could get to Avalone ourselves, right? They want to travel there in mind, right? They want to remember. They long to be connected, even even if it's not about the straight road, even if it's not about sailing there. Um, Yeah, and Arthur, that's a really interesting point, too. Um, Arthur says that it's interesting that here it's Numenor that's still out there somewhere. Yeah, um, yes. um, The land of gift is taken away, and in the world of this present darkness, they cannot be found. They, Avaloni, and the land of gift, right? Both Avalon and Numenor. Yet once they, both of them, were, and therefore they both still are in true being and in the whole shape of the world. But see, Arthur, that's where I think we get the emphasis. They know it's gone, right? They know it's sunk beneath the waves. It's not just like if only we could find it, you know, we could return to Numenor and rebuild our, you know, our kingdoms and our lives and everything would be fine, right? They know it's gone. That's why, again, this is not just the desire for travel, regular 
travel, even if you can call sailing down the straight path uh, regular travel, um, but time travel, right? To see those things as they were, because it may be gone, but it hasn't been totally taken away. Um, So, yeah, Christopher... (laughs) Christopher asks, are we referring to a permanence that might come from having been part of the music of creation? While the land of gift was taken, the music that brought it forth still lives in the mind of Iluvatar? Maybe, but but again, really, it sounds like they are longing to... I can't help but think that this is still circling back to Raymer's desire for travel. Right? In the same... You know, the same... I think he, in his mind, is still returning to that initial premise of The Lost Road and the Notion Club Papers. That is the time travel story, right? And that desire that drove Raymer first to find a new fictional vehicle, right? A new a new fictional mechanism. I'm forgetting my vocabulary again now. It's been so long. Um, um, but... Um, yeah, no, I can't remember. Um, but anyway... Uh, and then, but that same longing now, he is integrating that longing into the Numenorean exiles. That longing for seeing and traveling in other times. And remember, it's not been forgotten. Remember who else has that desire? Gandalf. Remember Gandalf's speech about this? About how t- he was tempted to look into the Palantir? About how, like, looking into the Palantir, he might even be able to see the, 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 the hand and mind of Feanor at work, right? Um, Gandalf desires to look back in time and to see, the, again, the things that have passed away, right? Um, it's, not, it's not an impulse that is gone, Right. It's not one that we think about a lot. I mean, you know, I think if you just sort of talk to Lord of the Rings readers and say, like, hey, so uh, you see the theme about like the desire for time travel? I think most people would be looking at you funny. Right. But um, I think this really kind of brings out something that we can that we can see there. Similar. I mean, remember, it happens in um, Frodo's vision in the mirror of Galadriel as well. What does he see? Remember what he sees? What does Frodo see? He sees into the past, right? Frodo time travels in through the mirror of Galadriel. Remember what he sees? What does he see near the beginning of his vision? Yeah, he sees the history of the men of Westerness. He sees, um, he sees the ships driven before the wind, ships with tattered sails, right? He sees this. He sees people escaping Numenor, right? He sees Elendil coming to Middle Earth. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Brian, I agree. You really could put those um, a lot of those words there into the mouths of Raymer and Loudum. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Tony is thinking about the tendency of the elves to want to preserve that which is fair. Yeah, Tony, I mean, you could say there's another form of time travel that happens in Lothlorien, right? Not just in the mirror, but in Lothlorien itself, right? I mean, even the kind of uncertainty and ambiguity they have about their, like, how much time has passed and all that, right? 
like being in Lothlorien is time traveling. Um, you f- like when you are there, you are walking in a world that is no more, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, Tony, exactly. was thinking about the same thing with Lorien and time travel. Um, yeah, yeah. And Brian, you're absolutely right that these kinds of time travel can be dangerous for those not strong enough to handle them. Yeah, yeah. Both in the mirror and in the Palantir. Absolutely. Um, yep. No, it's, it is perilous. And like, you know, I think Raymer would agree that there is definitely, uh, peril, um, yeah, yeah. Good. Oh, good. Christopher's also remembering Faramir's um, explanation of their moment of silence before the meal in Henneth Noon, right? We look to... Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I don't remember the exact phrasing either, Christopher, but it is temporally oriented, like you're saying, right? To Numenor that was, to Elvenholm that is, and beyond uh, into the West, which ever shall be, right? Um yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that desire for time travel, that desire to see back to Numenor that was, is like in the, you know, uh, even you know the mealtime prayer of uh, of the Gondorians, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that which is beyond Elvenholm and shall ever be. Right, right, right. Good, good. Anyway, absolutely. So it's one of those things. Like once you notice it, you're like, dang, that's kind of everywhere, actually, isn't it? Right. Um, uh, it's really interesting to go back and think about um, uh, and think about all of the um, ways. You know, like you, you go back and you think about the relationship with the past that which comes up so often in the Lord of the Rings. Um, and again, it's and that's not to say that like it's all exactly this, right? That um, every time anyone talks about the past or longs for the past or regrets the fact that the you know the the the, the new age is coming and the elder days are going, that that's all just like a time travel situation. We, you know, we can't be too um, uh, sort of crude about lumping all that stuff together. But it really does. Um, set us up for thinking about this in some interesting ways, doesn't it? Now, you are right, Bruce, to emphasize that uh, in Faramir's explanation, he does emphasize that Numenor is gone, which does con- contrast with this passage. Yes, I agree. I agree. Faramir does seem to be... Well, but... Hmm, again, I don't think that this passage is implying that even the narrator, uh, you know, whoever is the author of, you know, the drowning of Anadune, um, is of the belief that like Numenor is being preserved somewhere like that theoretically, you know, in some kind of Jules Verne esque adventure, we could come upon the lost city of, you know, the lost continent of Numenor. Right. I don't think that they're under that impression when they talk about Numenor still being, they still are in true being and in the whole shape of the world. I think that the whole shape of the world probably refers to the whole shape of the world in time as well as in space. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. Um, yeah, Christopher says the longing for the past is also strong in Denethor, though for him it's less about Numenor than about things as they were in the time of his fathers. Yes, and in in Denethor we can see that desire to not let time move forward, right? I mean, in Denethor, one of the things that's happening is 
the I mean, he's kind of a complicated case, right? Because he is certainly resisting um, the, the 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 new age to come. Um, he doesn't want things to change from how they've been. He would have things as they've been all the days of his life. Um, but at the same time, he's not... Uh, you could say it's the new age that he's resisting. You could also say it's, I mean, it's the return of the king that he resists, right? That he doesn't want to see. Um, so in a sense, it's the return to the older days before the time of him and his fathers uh, is what he doesn't want to see. So there is a way, of course, in which in Aragorn and in Faramir and even in Denethor, right? Remember the whole, the blood of Numenor runs nearly uh, true in them, right? Uh, Business from Gandalf. Um, We can see the older days returning. Again, it's like there's time travel going on there, right? Um, But Denethor, though he himself is almost an example of it, doesn't doesn't want it, right? Resists it. Uh, and so therefore I think that's, again, it's sort of another cue that he's on the, um, on the wrong path, right? Uh, sort of the wrong application of things for it. Um, yeah. Um, Yeah, Carrie is like um, going into the past that restores the years and yields a kind of a kind of extended longevity. Yes, I mean the the desire to see back into the past to kind of have the past and the future or like the past and the present at the same time is, I think, related, right? Uh, related to the. Um, to the desire for immortality, right? To the desire for never-ending life, which was the downfall of the Numenorians and which continues to plague them uh, in exile as well. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a really uh, it's a really interesting way to think about it. All right, let's keep going, though. We're going to get in trouble. All right. Now, the issue of the roundness of the world. This is going to keep coming up, right? And we're gonna, we'll try to keep sorting it out. Unfortunately, it's not really linear uh, in Tolkien's development of this idea. I continue to think that this is a really, really important element. Um, it is still my conclusion that the question of how to handle the round and the flat world is one of the few places in which Tolkien, I think, is certainly questioning the mythology that he'd already created, right? I am not convinced that he is rethinking any of the mythology, really. Um, that he's actually going back and saying, okay, let's let's redo the Elder Days, right? Forget everything I said before about the Elder Days. This is the new Elder Days, right? Um, uh, I'm not convinced that he's really saying that anywhere except here. I think the question of the roundness of the world is the one truly fraught element of the mythology that we see him really kind of confronting, that the whole project of doing the drowning of Anadune has forced him to confront this in a completely new way, right? But they found it not, and they said, All the ways are bent that once were straight. For in the youth of the world it was a hard saying to men that the earth was not plain, that is flat, as it seemed to be, and few even of the faithful of the faithful of Anadune had believed in their hearts this teaching, 
and when in after days, what by starcraft, what by the voyages of ships that sought out all the ways and waters of the earth, the kings of men knew that the world was indeed round, then the belief arose among them that it had so been made only in the time of the great downfall, and was not thus before. Therefore they thought that, while the new world fell away, the old road and the path of the memory of the earth went on towards heaven, as it were a mighty bridge invisible. And many were the rumors and tales among them concerning mariners and men forlorn upon the sea, who by some grace or fate had entered in upon the ancient way, and seen the face of the world sink below them, and so had come to the lonely isle, or verily to the, to the land of Amman that was, and had looked upon the white mountain, dreadful and beautiful, ere they died. Okay, um, so... So now they're living in a bent world, Arthur. Well, you've capitalized bent. Um, so I, I, I suspect, yeah, no, they've been in a bent world the whole point time. That's the problem is they got bent at the beginning. Uh, if you're using bent uh, in the uh, Malachandrian sense of bent uh, as a synonym for evil um, uh, or fallen. But uh, anyway, um, okay. Notice where he's kind of settling things out here. Um, the question of... We've been told, right? The elves have been saying in the previous two versions that the world is really round. Has always been round. Is round from the beginning. Remember in the very first version, there was that business of the elves saying uh, sort of awkwardly, yeah, the world is round and the ban is designed to prevent you discovering that, right? Which we all thought was a little bit odd uh, and not very satisfactory. Um, and then they mention it again in the second, uh, in the second version, right? In the, in the second version of the Drowning of Anadune. So, um, which again, there the elves during the like context of their philosophical discussion with the Numenorians explicitly connected the roundness of the world with the constrained limits upon the lives of humans, right? That they are con just as the world is a closed circle and you, you know, there's only so much of it, right? Um, it does not stretch off infinitely. Um, so too is the life of of humans circumscribed, uh, and uh, they, you know, can only go around it so far. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Tony says he finds it interesting that he wrestles with the round earth, but not the late sun and moon. Uh, yeah, we'll get there, Tony. Uh, ha having first tried to deal with the round earth, uh, the late sun and moon is going to be, is going to be uh, uh, the, uh, one of the next issues, certainly. Um, yeah, so Stephen, exactly what, where he's come here in this later version of the drowning is that the world has always been round, but the men didn't believe it. So in the old days, they thought it was flat. They only discover for sure that it's round. What by Starcraft, what by voyages of ships, right? Um, they only by those means discover that it's round later on, after the, the, the downfall of Numenor, right? And so they theorize, but they, they refuse to accept the idea that it's always been round. 
So the idea that it was made round at the time of the drowning of Numenor is a theory put forward by the exiles, right? Um, because they just cannot believe that the world had been round the whole time. Um, yes, yes. Um, let's see. Bruce is asking, do we have any idea if Tolkien would have been aware of Einstein's view of space as curved? Uh, Tolkien's familiarity with the theory of general relativity? Uh, I don't know. Um, one thing I will say, though, is um, it was an Oxford thing for, you know, the... Um, you know, the, the, the dons from different departments and stuff, uh, very often to get together and be talking together. That was a very frequent element of, um, a very frequent element of, of Oxford life. Um, so we know that there are a bunch of like scientific archeological, uh, discoveries and things, you know, contemporary discoveries that Tolkien was very much aware of, um, and seems to have just like kind of picked up talking to colleagues at Oxford. So I don't think it's impossible. Yeah, Tony, exactly. It would have happened much more back in Oxford in those days than it does now. Absolutely. Um, uh, so anyway, yeah. Um, it's not impossible that he could have heard uh, of general relativity. I can't remember the dates of Einstein's publication of the theory of general relativity, um, but as long as it was there before... I, I, I can't remember the dates on it, but this is 46, right, is when, uh, is when this is being written. So, yeah, okay, I was pretty sure it was earlier. Um, I couldn't remember the dates. Um, but, uh, so, it's possible. I don't... I don't see any reason to believe it though like that is to believe it relevant i don't see any reason to think that um uh i don't think that when he's talking about the world made round he I, there's never anything that he talks about that makes me really think of the curvature of space time um, certainly not in a relativistic sense. Uh, he just doesn't, he's still seems to be thinking, I mean, the, the idea of the, the straight path and everything shows pretty clearly that he's thinking of this in relatively simple terms from a physics standpoint. Right. Um, so yeah. Um, so yeah, he could have known about it, but I don't think see any reason to think that it's influenced his thinking here, or his imagination here. Um, okay, we're going to keep an eye on this because, surprise, surprise, this is not the last time that the question of the roundness of the Earth is going to come up, and again, we'll be coming in, back and discussing it again, as I've promised uh, in uh, the beginning of Morgoth's Ring, uh, when we return to the history of Middle-earth after we talk about our next book. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, oh, Stephen, absolutely not. I mean, a round earth is not a recent idea at all. Um, it's an ancient Greek idea. Um, the idea of a flat earth is a recent idea. That's the recent thing. Um, uh, people didn't think the world was... This is one of my pet peeves. Uh, people who 
say that everybody in the Middle Ages believed that the world was flat. Everybody knew that the world was round in the Middle Ages. Um, exactly. It's in, it's all in Dante. What did they teach them in these schools, Bruce? I agree. Yep, exactly. Um, so yeah, no, like everybody in the Middle Ages knows uh, that the world is round. Um, so yeah. Um, well, we'll come back to this. We'll come back to this when we see what he's doing. But just no, so we let's just notice for now that in this later version of the drowning, um, he is all, kind of reconciling it, right, by saying that they're now theorizing that the world was made round at the time of the downfall, right? Which is different, right? Which is different than it was. Um, uh, than it than 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 we had before, right? In the earlier versions, we had the elves either breaking the news or not wanting to break the news that the world is has always been round, right? Um, and thus, it seemed at the beginning of the drowning of Anadune that he was completely leaving aside. Um, uh, he was completely leaving aside the concept of the world being made round at the time of the drowning of Numenor, which was explicitly in the fall of Numenor, right? The earlier Elvish perspective stuff that we got earlier on. Um, that idea has suddenly returned here, right? It's like he, 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 he's not yet really wanting, he wants the world to be round, but he's not yet wanting to get rid of the idea that it was flat and then made round at the time of the drowning of Numenor. So this is like the perfect way to have your cake and eat it too, right? You can imply that it probably was round all the time, but nevertheless, we're going to keep the myth, Right, the mythic story that it was flat and then made round. So uh, everybody's happy. Lovely. Okay. Um, now I believe I'm. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm remembering correctly. This comes to the first of the sketches, except Christopher gives us the second of the sketches first. So this is the second of the sketches. Now, Tolkien called these the theory of the work. Right. Um, let's look at this, and the first thing we need to do is decide what are we reading here, right? Um, these are notes that Tolkien made, rough notes that he sketched, right? Evil reincarnates itself from time to time, reiterating, as it were, the fall. There were Enkeladim once on earth, but that was not their name in this world. It was Eladai in Numenorian Eldar. After the first fall, they tried to befriend men and teach them to love the earth and all things that grow in it. But evil also was ever at work. There were false Eldar, counterfeits and deceits made by evil, ghosts and goblins, but not always evil to look at. They terrified men, or else deceived and betrayed them, and hence arose the fear of men for all the spirits of earth. Okay, what are we reading? What are we reading? What is this? Is this... So, when Tolkien heads it with the title, The Theory of the Work, it sounds like it's going to be like an exposition of what's really going on, right? Here's what I'm getting at. Here's the plan of The Drowning of Anadune. That doesn't seem to be what we're getting here, right? Yeah, Devorah, that's just what I'm thinking, too. Devorah says, it's like the skeleton structure of what's under the surface. Yes. Um, Devorah, that's just what I think, too. I think this is him 
spelling out the ideas that don't come into the story, right? Because they're not known from the point of view of the narrator of the story, right? The fictional person, human, right, who wrote down the drowning of Anaduna, he doesn't know all this stuff, right? But this is all the stuff that's going on under the surface. So this is like Tolkien doing his world building, um, and then he's going to write the story from this limited perspective, which doesn't know all these things, right? That seems to be what is happening. Yeah, Christopher says, this is myth explaining how men came to be uh, estranged from the rest of the world. Sure. Yeah. Now, notice we do get some cues which suggest the frame of reference he's coming from. Right? There were Enkeladim once on Earth. What's that? What does that tell us? What is interesting about the fact that he's using the word Enkeladim? It tells us something. What does it tell us? Do you remember when that word came up before? It's a tricky question, but... Anybody remember? Yes, Devorah. Absolutely. And Brian. Yes, good. Um... That was one of Raymer's people. That was one of Raymer's words for one of the people that he came into contact with in his space travels. Exactly. And as Brian says, um, it is specifically part of the Notion Club papers. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, This is from a Notion Club papers point of view. In fact, I can't help but wonder that in... That first sentence there of that second paragraph, there were in Keladim once on Earth, but that was not their name in this world. Makes me wonder if Raymer or Loudum, but probably Raymer, might actually be the narrator of this piece. Is he actually thinking about this like within the characters of the characters of the Notion Club papers? As if Raymer himself is explaining? The background that he's seen, right? The things that he has perceived through his travels um, from the kind of perspective that he has as dreamer, um, which, of course, is going to be very different from the point of view of the drowning of Anadune, which, remember, is very much like the text that Laudam's dad had a transcript of, pieces of which come to Laudam himself in vision. Right, So the drowning of Anadune is like a historical document written by the descendants of one of the exiles, right? Um, which has already begun to kind of confuse things and, and, and doesn't and is ignorant of much of the elder you know of much that happened in the elder days, right? Um, and this is like what a frame almost? I'm, see, I'm not 100 percent sure, as I said, what it is that we're reading. Um, it doesn't sound to me, we've spent a fair bit of time, we have in the Mythcard Academy, going through Tolkien's plot sketches and things, right? Think of all the sets of plot notes we've looked through uh, during the course of our studies of the history of Middle-earth, right? And the history of the Lord of the Rings, especially. This doesn't sound like Tolkien's plot notes. This doesn't sound like Tolkien just jotting down notes to himself, exactly, Right? It sounds more than that, and in particular, with the use of there were in Keladim once on Earth. On Earth 
is another phrase there, especially in the context of Inkeladim, which strikes me as strange, right? He doesn't talk, he doesn't use that phrase usually. On Earth, where else would they be? Well, they would. it would be important that they are on Earth compared to the other Enkeladim, which are on other planets, as Raymer was explaining, right? So if this were Raymer speaking to the other members of the Notion Club, then he would say something exactly like that. There were Enkeladim once on Earth, but that was not their name in this world. That is, in this world, they weren't called Enkeladim. It was Elidai, Inuminorian Eldar. And then he tells the whole story of what happened, right? Um, yeah, Brian says his sentence, like one of Tolkien's writings, started out as narrative intended to be part of the work, but descended into broad outline and notes. Possibly, though, of course, Brian, often enough, it goes in the other way, right? Starts off as notes and becomes dialogue, right? And, uh, uh, and, and discussion. And I'm wondering, perhaps that's happening, too. Like, I, I could see, for instance, Brian, that first sentence. Evil reincarnates itself from time to time, reiterating as it were the fall. That does sound like it could be a note, right? Like him writing down, him, he's starting, he's like, okay, I'm going to write the theory of the work. So he, I'm just going to start jotting down, like, the important world-building ideas that underlie this. Evil reincarnates itself from time to time, reiterating as it were the fall. And then after one sentence, like, boom, now he's in Raymer's voice. Like, now he's suddenly hearing Raymer speaking, and now it all starts flowing, and now it's all a paragraph, right? And, uh, and narrative. Um, yes, a couple of you are being reminded of the Nephilim. Um, I think that is, uh, semi-accidental. Um, accidental only, uh, I say semi-accidental because of course it sounds exactly like it because it is using a, um, uh, a Semitic pluralization, uh, plural form, right? With the, you know, the deem ending uh, to make it plural, which is, in fact, you know, a Semitic plural form. Um, but of course, all of Adunayic has been Semitic, right? So that's kind of been going on uh, throughout this thing. But apart from that, um, I don't see much that is similar between uh, the you know, the the sons of God and the daughters of men from Genesis 6 in this passage exactly. In tone, maybe a little bit, but it seems more of a contrast than than a comparison, really. Um, but anyway, um, okay, let's see if my Raymer theory continues to play out. Okay. Men awoke first in the midst of the great Middle Earth, Europe and Asia, and Asia was first thinly inhabited before the dark ages of great cold. Even before that time, men had spread westward and eastward as far as the shores of the sea. The Enkeladim, changed to Elidai, withdrew into waste places or retreated westward. The men who journeyed westward were in general those who remained in closest touch with the true Elidai, and for the most part they were drawn west by the rumor of a land in or beyond the western sea which was beautiful, and was the home of the Elidai, where all things were fair and ordered to beauty. This was so far. This was so, for there was a great island in the ocean where the Elidai had first awakened when the world was made, that is, complete and ready for their operations." Okay. 
Ähm, okay, Stephen, I do agree. It does this. It does have a biblical cadence. I, I totally agree. Um, yes, that I think is certainly is certainly fair. Um, yes. And as Tony for the elevation of elves to angelic status, well, sure, right? I mean, we've been seeing that from the beginning of the drowning of Anadune. And again, it makes all kinds of sense, right? When we're coming from the human point of view, you know, you've got these other spirits that they're meeting and you've got these elves that they're meeting and they don't know what's the difference among them, right? They just know that they're all, you know, these great and beautiful spirits, which are, you know, way beyond them and all of them apparently immortal too. Um, so, but I, again, I don't, it's not exactly an elevation so much as a different perspective, right? A different point of view. Um, anyway. Okay. Notice, of course, the most fascinating thing that he does here is connect this explicitly with our world, right? Europe and Asia. So Middle Earth is explicitly Europe and Asia. Um, yeah. Now keep in mind, we're still going to have, like, Beleriand is still there and hasn't been drowned yet, right? So there's still a, a great deal of geographical change that's going to come before this is going to look like uh, Europe and Asia as we currently know them. Um, see, I wonder, Kimber says it, you know, he thinks he's trying too hard uh, here to link it to our world. I see what you mean, but I'm not sure I don't see it kind of the other way around there, actually. Um, remember that for Tolkien... It had always been this, right? I mean, the whole inception of Tolkien's mythology was an explanatory mythology. How did the stories of elves come into our world, right? What is the history of our world and its links to fairy? That was the, those were like the fundamental questions that his mythology set out to answer. Of course, in a specifically English way, right? What is the origin um, uh, of, Eng you know, what are, what are, what are the, Eng the native English fairy traditions which hadn't existed, right? Um, but anyway, the link to our world was fundamental from the very start. Um, and it's been waning. It's been declining, right? It was very, very strong in the Book of Lost Tales, all the way down to, like, the tug of war between Aule and Olmo, which ended up ripping part of the, uh, of, of Toleresia off from the rest of it, and that's why Ireland is there, right? Because it got ripped off the side during that tug of war. I mean, extremely, um, uh, extremely detailed stuff. About and even till you know Toleresia is dragged back uh, until it's only the English Channel's width away from the rest of the lands and stuff. So, you know, I mean, again, all those things. Um, he's very explicitly tying it to our world uh, and to Europe and Asia. Um, that diminishes significantly, 
But there's reason to think that that never really went away, right? And now here we see evidence that it's still lingering, right? So I I, I agree with, like, the criticism that you're making, Kimber. Again, I, I don't feel like this works super well. What's interesting is that, again, this is not exactly him trying hard. This is him, like, not giving it up, um, even though it kind of seems like he could, like he should. But this is, I think, going to be a super, this is a super important point to keep in mind. Um, we were asking this, remember, when we were talking about the roundness of the world last week. The question came in then, like, okay, so hang on. Is this our world or not? Is he, in fact, constrained to identify this world with our world? Because if he's not, he can make it flat if he wants to make it flat. But if he is, then, like, he knows it's really round, so now what, right? And here's him answering that question. Is this our world? Yup. Is this a world of his? Is this a fantasy world of his creation? No, it is not. Um, yeah. So, um, no, Bruce, I agree. I mean, we, we've we've seen it, right? Well, you say he's connected it to Middle Earth, to modern geography before in the prologue to the Lord of the Rings. Remember, he wrote that prologue after he wrote this, right? This comes first. Um, uh, remember, he's writing this. While this this is all happening while Sam is unconscious, right? Sam has just run into the door in Kirith, uh, 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 under Kirith Ungol, right? In Shilob's lair um, and knocked himself unconscious and the two towers comes to an end. That's where he is, right? Uh, when he's writing all this stuff. So he's not even finished writing The Lord of the Rings yet. And he certainly hasn't gone back and done the prologue and the appendices. Um, but... Um, yeah, but in The Hobbit, we see it. But again, The Hobbit's a different situation. Again, no, my point is that it's never gone away, right? Um, and I'm not saying this is the only place or the first time we've seen it since the Book of Lost Tales, but it's been very clearly diminishing. And one of the questions that does arise as we were reading The Drowning was like, okay, hang on. Is this still our world? Answer, clearly. Absolutely, yes. It is still our world. He still has not let go of that idea. Um Okay, so, all right. Notice another idea that enters here, which has been an idea which has come up a lot in the context of the drowning and thinking about Avalone and all that stuff. And that is this idea of earthly paradise, right? Um, The Lonely Isle, Elvenholm, is now within the drowning being associated not just with like that place where elves go. In fact, like in the Book of Lost Tales perspective, Toleresia was like the home in exile or semi-exile, right? It was like you can kind of mostly go home, but not quite, right? Um, so you can't go back to the old uh, Tyrian. Uh, you just, you know, the old core, core Tyrian, right? You just have to instead go to like new Cortirian in Toleresia. Um, so you can go 90% of the way back, but you can't go all the way back, right? That was so, I mean, it was, Toleresia was like the holding zone, right? For the elves who were kind of not 100% forgiven, right? Um, now, you see the difference? Now Toleresia, Avalone, uh, is the place where they first awakened 
it is elvish Eden, literally elvish Eden, right? Just as the Garden of Eden was there for Adam and Eve when they first awoke, right? But they lost it and humans sinned and fell into sin. The elves didn't lose it, right? They still have their paradise. So there is still an Eden. There still is an earthly paradise, which is accessible and which they, the Eldar, still live in, right? Um, that's what that great island in the ocean means in the context of this Numenorean stuff. Um, Tony says, is this a change or a misunderstanding by men? Well, see, that is an excellent question, right? And certainly, Tony, I was ready. When we were just reading the four different versions of the drowning of Anadune, I was ready to say 100% firmly, no questions at all. The only issue that Tolkien is, I think, actively reconsidering is the question of the roundness of the world, right? Other than that, I don't think, think that anything in the drowning of Anadune is any kind of evidence that Tolkien is reconsidering the fundamental mythology of the Elder Days, I would have said with 100% confidence. Then we read these, right? And I'm like, uh, okay, I still think that's probably true. Probably true. But my confidence is a little bit less, right? Especially since, Tony, my problem comes in with not really being sure what these are, right? Um, If these are authoritative, authorial utterances, right? If these are Tolkien telling us, pulling back the curtain and telling us what's really happening underneath, then... You know, Tony, it could be a change, right? Um, it uh, it really could be a change. Um, so, yeah. Um, let's see. Well, Kimber, hang on a second. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Mid-20th century archaeology, it still had life beginning in Mesopotamia, right? Tolkien says that explicitly at one point or other here, that the men first awoke in Mesopotamia. Um, but that was still, I mean, the the idea that, you know, human civilization began in Africa is a newer idea, isn't it? Am I remembering correctly that in the mid-20th century, if you asked an archaeologist, they would have said, oh, Mesopotamia, Fertile Crescent, seven days a week, right? Right? I, th- I think that's what was, yeah, I think that's uh, what was generally accepted then. So in saying that the men awoke in Mesopotamia, I believe that Tolkien is just following current archaeological um, theory there. Um Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and maybe it's maybe he's just kind of eliding those things, Kimber. Um the question of right and Tomas is talking about Darwin. Um what Tolkien is clearly talking about is the beginning of human civilization. Um so yeah, I think he's 
the one step then perhaps that you could say that he is making is connecting the awakening of humans with the beginning of agriculture and civilization. Yeah. Yeah. So I think Kimber in that sense, that's what Tolkien would have meant by humans arising. So he's when he, cause he does imagine the awakening, right? Um, the humans in his world are clearly not emerging by a Darwinian process, right? That is perfectly clear. They are awakening like the elves awoke, right? Um, and so it's it's you know he places that in Mesopotamia because that's where where human civilization began as everybody knows right um, so anyway yeah that's that's so again there I don't think he's uh, I don't think that's a question of him like coming up with something exactly again I think that's him um, making connections between you know uh, this world and our world our world as sort of he understands it and as he's kind of translating it into the myth uh, of uh, of of this of this world right okay um, there's another piece of evidence that we haven't considered about what this text is Tony going back to your question is this a change in the mythology or misunderstanding by men that we're getting here There's another really conspicuous word in this passage, frequently repeated, right? Why are we referring to the elves as the Eladai? What does that tell us? Or what does that suggest? Anyway, let me be a little more cautious there. What does that suggest? That he's referring to the elves as the Eladai. What is that name? What is that word? Whose name is that? Who calls the elves the Eladai? Yes, that's Adonaiic. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, what are we getting here in this text? Are we getting the real truth? The objective account which underlies which is then dressed up in misunderstood myth from the point of view of the exiles of Numenor? Is that what we're getting here? Not necessarily. Or at least it seems rather conspicuous that we're getting this in the language, like from the linguistic framework of Adunayak, right? So I'm not at all sure that we can say clearly that this is objective um, authorial, that these are objective authorial statements at all. At least not all of them. Let's keep going. Thus it is that the more beautiful legends containing truths arose of Oreads, Dryads, and Nymphs, and of the Leos Alfar, the Light Elves of the Norse. At length... Men reached the western shores of the Great Lands, and were halted on the shores of the sea. The shock and awe and longing of that meeting has remained in their descendants ever since, and the great sea and the setting sun has been to them the most moving symbol of death and of hope for escape. In the margin of the text of this page, Christopher adds, which ends at this point, my father wrote, 
the Almighty, even after the fall, allowed an earthly paradise to be maintained for a while, but the, Eld- the Eldai were bidden to withdraw thither as men spread. If they would remain as they had been, otherwise they would fade and diminish. Um, okay. So... Oh, that's really interesting. Brian says the references to legends and to uh, and to the Lios Alfar uh, again sounds like Notion Club dialogue. Yeah, uh, Brian, it's it's like sketchy Notion Club dialogue. It's like kind of outliney Notion Club dialogue. But I agree with you that this like um, that sentence does sound like something that like Loudum might say, right? Or Jeremy? Well, probably not Jeremy, but Loudum or Raymer. Either one of them might say that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, yeah. Notice what register we are clearly not in. The shock and awe and longing of that meeting has remained in their descendants ever since, and the great sea and the setting sun has been to them the most moving symbol of death and of hope for escape. You know what that doesn't sound like? Plot notes is what that doesn't sound like, right? That does not sound like the notes that Tolkien jots for himself. This is a Tolkien who, even if he did begin that way, has clearly been swept up into writing full prose narrative style, right? Um, Even that last sentence, too. Again, none of this really sounds plot-noty at all. Um, Yeah, so I think that whatever he... The fact that this is titled The Theory of the Work does not convey much to me. Or that is, I don't, uh, I don't take that as a promise by Tolkien, that he's just writing us a set of notes telling us what was really going on, right? Um, he may well have set out that way, but... Um, uh, and Because I don't think... Does Christopher say that all three of them have that same heading? I think, doesn't he say that, like, one of them has that heading and the others don't have headings at all, so he's just you know, put that at the front of this whole section. Um, that's what I thought he said. Correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, but anyway, so yeah, um, I think this is Tolkien thinking through his ideas and then he, uh, uh, is developing narratives. Is this material that he's going to use this like sort of a draft kind of thing, right? Him sort of working out these concepts and some of this, uh, language might make itself make its way into um, into the the text of the drowning of Anadune, or otherwise. As we've been saying, is this stuff that he is working through, which could make it into the text of the Notion Club papers, which never got written. Right? There's a lot more conversation still to be had um, in the Notion Club. Right? That which he still had not firmly abandoned yet. At this same time, he's still writing this all at the same time. So, is this something which he's projecting forward there? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
if we accept. See, Kimber, if we theorize that Tolkien is wrestling with the theories behind his work, that he's kind of confronting, you know, contradictions and trying to work it all out, or at least put it all out there, right, to think think through, then we have to say that things like this, like Toleresia is where elves emerge. So Quivianen, forget Quivianen, right? Forget all those stories. Um, new mythology, the elves emerged in in Eresia, right? Um, and if they don't stay there in the Elvish Eden, the island of Elvish Eden, then they're going to fade and diminish. Right? New, that's the new mythology. Do we believe that? I'm not saying it's completely impossible, but I would say it takes a lot of believing. And I don't think I do believe it in the end. Um, this begins to sound too much like drafting to me. Um, almost no sentence other than maybe that very, very first one, right? Um, I mean, okay, let me just look through again. Nothing on this page, not even that last sentence, because we're still using Eladai. Um, and uh, the whole, like, we're bidden to withdraw thither as men spread. We're still in the same tone. Um, uh, no, I mean, even the business about Europe and Asia was first thinly inhabited before the dark ages of great cold. If he was writing notes to himself, he would have said the Ice Age, probably, right? Again, it still sounds like drafting. It sounds like narrative. It sounds like the tone of something else, right? Not just a note to himself, as we've seen a lot of notes, his notes to himself. Those are often in fragments, right? These are not fragmentary. Again, the only thing to me that sounds like it could be a note to himself is that first line. Evil reincarnates itself from time to time, reiterating, as it were, the fall. That I can absolutely believe is a note to himself. But none of the rest of it sounds like it. And indeed, it all begins from the second sentence with the Enkeladim and the Eladai. Uh, we start getting, we start sinking within the frame, right? Whether it's the frame of the drowning of Anadunai or, I think, the frame of the Notion Club papers, which surrounds the frame of the drowning of Anadunai, because the drowning of Anadunai is like a text discovered within the Notion Club papers, right? Um, possibly in the Anglo-Saxon version of it. Um, so... Yeah. Okay. Um, now we get, I think, what was this? The third version? Um, okay. This is another one of those sketches. In times remote, when men, though they had now wandered for many, many lives upon the face of the earth, were yet young and untutored, save such few kindreds as had become knit in friendship with the western Eladai, and their language had become enriched, and they knew verse and song and other arts, evil once again took visible shape. A great tyrant arose, first as the warlord of a tribe, but he grew slowly to a mighty king, magician, and finally a god. In the midst, written above north... Of the great lands was the seat of this terrible dominion, and all about men became enslaved to him. Okay, this is like a quiz. 
Who is who are we talking about? We're talking about the rise of Sauron? Kind of sounds like the rise of Sauron. In that time, darkness became terrible. The black power slowly extended westward, for Meliko knew that there lingered the most powerful and beneficent of the Elidai, and that their friendship with men was the greatest obstacle to his complete dominion. Nope, it's Melkor. Okay. Those among men of the West who were most filled with sea hunger began to make boats, aided and inspired, as in much else, by the Elidai, and they began to essay the waters, at first with fear, but with growing mastery of wind and tide and of themselves. But now war broke out, for the forces of Melico threatened the lands of the west marches of the sea. The men of the West were strong and free, and the Easterlings of Melico were driven back again and again. But this was only a respite, for the Easterlings were innumerable, and the attack was ever renewed with greater force, and Melico sent phantoms and demons and spirits of evil into the Western lands, so that these also might become intolerable and a time of dread when men cowered in their houses and looked no more on the stars." Okay. Um, so, what is this now? First of all, this is still the second sketch. I'm pretty sure. I, I got I confused myself for a second when he said, uh, "In the margin of the text of this page, which ends at this point, is not the text that ends at this point. It's the text of that page ends at that point." Uh, uh, the, the the text itself continues on the next page. Right, so sorry, that's where I got confused there. Okay, so we're still in the second sketch. Um, which, now, notice. Notice how un-outline-y this, 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 there's no, there's no vestige of outline remaining. What does this sound like? This sounds like a drafting. This sounds like a, a the, 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 the initial concept behind the drowning of Anadune. Right, um, it bears much in common with. It's not exactly identical. In particular, <coughs> sorry. Whew. Okay. In particular, yes, there's that business, Arthur, which is pretty um, strange. Right, Melko started as a man. A great tyrant arose, first as the warlord of a tribe, but he grew slowly to a mighty king, magician, and finally a god, which is why I'm like, okay, this is Sauron, right? Um, no, no, that was Melkor. Excuse me, Melico. Yeah. So, notice that Christopher d- was totally unclear about the timing of all this, right? Where do these sketches fall here? Um, in relationship to the other draftings, the other drafts of the drowning of Anadune. And um, so I don't know. I don't know if this is a rough draft or something. I don't know if this is uh, like when the ideas are first emerging of doing the drowning of Anadune, but that sure is what it sounds like. This is, again, the kind of wholesale recasting. Um, And again, is it possible that he is considering this as a possibility, considering this as a way to redo his entire mythology and pitch everything about the Silmarillion tradition out the window and start again with Melico, who works up the ranks from, you know, tribal leader to finally being embraced as a god. 
and having the entire conflict, you know, the central conflict of the wars of the elder days be between uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the good guys and uh, and the Easterlings. Right. Um, Possible. I mean, I guess it's possible that he was doing that, but I really don't think so. Um, And I think we have really good reasons not to think that he was not pitching all of that mythology out the window. And the primary reason I think we have to think he was not considering pitching all that out the window is the Lord of the Rings, right? Where he had been integrating that mythology all the way through. Um, And remember, where does he break off and start writing all this stuff? After Sam, uh, you know, in Kirith right? So, like, really? He just, like, Sam has just had his moments speaking in Quenya and, uh, you know, defying uh, Ungoliant, excuse me, Shelob, right? Um, that's, he, we've just had that, and now he's going to be like, actually, nah, never mind, right? Um, uh, turns out Arendel's just a guy, right? He's not, there's just, like, there's no Quenya associated with him, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um... Yeah, Nux O'Brien says, of course, it's possible that he was abandoning the Lord of the Rings, you know, that because you know, he set it aside for a while. Um, you know, is he turning away from the Lord of the Rings and going in this entirely new Notion Club papers way? You can't rule it out. I mean, it's not absolutely impossible. It's, it's possible to build a narrative of Tolkien's creative life where that works, right? But I don't believe it. And the reason I don't believe it is that like, when did we ever see Tolkien throw something away? Much less everything, right? I mean, Tolkien, as we've seen time and time again, is imaginatively very conservative, right? Um, when he decides to change something, he never just sets it on fire. He puts it in that drawer, right? So the idea to me, uh, I just like... I would need so much evidence that it absolutely like blew me away before I would consider the idea that he was like actually completely ready to throw up the whole thing. Um, exactly. He doesn't rewrite. He retcons, Tony. That's exactly it. Uh, and you're telling me that that guy, you know, that guy who, uh, you know, never permanently deletes a story, but just waits to see where he can reinsert it in a different way is going to be like, actually, yeah, Quintus Silmarillion, forget it. Uh, We're going in a different direction now. I just, yeah, I would need so much more evidence than this to convince me that he was doing that, especially when the tone and the shape of the narrative and even the language um, with the Elodai stuff leads me to think that this is probably him first working out the idea of the drowning Vanadune, right? Hey, let's begin imagining what things from men were like. So, I mean, again, that would explain where he started, right? With like the more theoretical stuff, right? About, you know, after the first fall, they tried to befriend men and teach them to love the earth and all things, right? But evil was also ever at work, right? So he's kind of giving the background to be like, okay, given that this was the situation of men, well, then what would have happened, right? Then they would have gone and they would have gone to the sea and that would have been like super impressive, right? And the Elodai are off in their earthly paradise as far as they, that's what they're going to think, 
right? The humans would probably think that. Um, and then, you know, they're going to be making legends and then, you know, we're going to, and then we get, you know, M- Melkor, their perspective, you know, their historical perspective mind uh, on the wars with Melkor. So this seems to me to be much more likely the concept of the drowning of Anadunai emerging, right? And him beginning to, uh, um, and him beginning to, to work that out again. Yes, Marilyn, exactly. I, I think exactly. He's having fun writing from the Manish point of view. Um, now notice the fact that he's using Melico here is kind of suggestive. Suggestive that this is happening before, certainly before he's written the second version, right? That's why I'm, I'm inclined to think that this may come before the first version of The Drowning of Anadunia, that this is kind of like a draft thing, right? Because remember, when he works out Anadunai more perfect, Anadunai, when he works out Adunaic, the language, more perfectly, um, then he has an, uh, an Adunaic name for Meliko, right? And he calls him Arun. But he is called Meliko in the first version, and then he's called Arun in the second version. So again, that would seem to me to date it earlier uh, than the other stuff. Um, Arthur, you can dream about a version where Meliko dates Melilot. Uh, <laughs> perhaps. Well, that's definitely not happening. The Elodai had long disappeared. Some said they had died or faded into nothing. Some that they had never been and were but the inventions of old-time tales. Some few that they had passed over the sea to their land in the west. A mariner arose in that time who was called Arendel, and he was king of men upon the west shore of the great sea in the north of the world. He reported that once taken by a great wind, he had been born far out of his course, and had indeed seen many islands in the regions of the setting sun, and one most remote, from which there came a scent as of gardens of fair flowers. Notice, that's uh, that's uh, uh, Notion Club paper stuff, right? The catching the scent from the west was like what Loudham was describing, right? It's a straight out of the Notion Club papers. And it came to pass that all the men of the West who had not died or fallen or fled into waste places were now hemmed in a narrow land, a large island, some say, and they were assailed by Milico, but only because their land was an isle divided by a narrow water from the great lands were they able to hold out. Then Arendel took his ship and said farewell to his people, for he said it was his purpose to sail into the West and find the Elodai and ask for their help. But I shall not return, he said. If I fail, then the sea will have me. But if I succeed, then a new star will arise in heaven. And what deeds Arendel did upon his last voyage is not known for certain, for he was not seen again among living men. But after some years a new star did indeed arise in the west, and it was very bright, and then many men began to look for the return of the Elodai to their aid, but they were hard-pressed by evil." Okay, so we've got him going in the West, not just now to seek Numenor, right? They have him going to find the Elodai and ask for their help. Is that a later version or an earlier version? I think this kind of sounds to me like an earlier version of the new Arendel story, right? When we're still remembering more clearly where what I, what the Arendel story was back in the Quintus Silmarillion days, right in the elf centric point of view, so it's different, but it's not yet fully different. And then as he continues to develop the ideas, it's going to push the story of Arendel, f- so that like bringing them to Numenor is his only goal, 
right? Is is the not just a side effect, but is the full accomplishment uh, of his uh, uh, of his um, of his quest. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Brian says, what deeds Arendel did are not known because I once again refused to write them. <laughs> yes, exactly. This, the deeds of Arendel never to be recounted. Um, yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Kimber is remi- is remembering the, uh, um, the lack of detail about what Arendel did being kind of similar to Bilbo's poetic version as we were discussing it on Tuesday. Um, you know, the sort of the mortal perspective, uh, you know, not sure what happened over there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course it's not exactly the same, but yes, um, it is interesting to think about Bilbo's poem as yet a, a very different, but, a, but an interestingly similar kind of frame, right? Frame of, let let me tell this story from a mortal perspective, not couched within ignorance of the facts as the, you know, the post Numenorean exiles became over time, right? More and more distant from and more and more confused about what was really true. Bilbo knows the facts, right? Seems to anyway, most of them, but, uh, um, but yeah, both of them are, um, are, giving a mortal perspective. Melico was defeated with the aid of the Elidae and of the powers, but many men had had succeed, had seceded to him. The powers, under orders of Iluvatar, withdrew the Elidae to the Isle of Arese, whose chief haven was westward, Avalonde. Those that remained in Middle-earth withered and faded, but faithful men of the Eruhildi, Turkildi, were also given an isle, between Arese and Middle-earth. Okay. Um, This is... So, we see here the War of Wrath. And notice, this is the War of Wrath given in more... The details of this are more similar to the Quintus Silmarillion tradition than we see in any of the versions of the Drowning of Anadune. Uh, In fact. Though, again... All of this still sounds much more like the drowning of Anadune. Um, and notice this in response to Marilyn. Your question, do we still have the Valar-Eldar conflation? No, right? We see that here, right? Um, but again, I'm not sure whether that means, is this before he decided that, like, you know, again, uh, you know, Marilyn, as you were saying, he's sort of experimenting with the Manish point of view, right? Is it only later that he decides, okay, hang on, yeah, let's have them not even sort that out, right? Um, is he still in the early... I, I'm inclined to think he's still in the early stages of working out what the Manish perspective would be, how little they would actually know, right? Um, and then and then he would, in the second version, kind of uh, pull that back a little bit. Okay, so this is Christopher now commenting, and he says, in sketch one, that was so that was sketch two. In sketch one, however, there was no reference to Eärendil, and all that is told is that when there came a respite in the war with the tyrant, who is not named in this text, and his Easterlings, the men of the West set sail, having been instructed in the art of shipbuilding by the last lingering Enkeladim, and they landed on a large island in the midst of the Great Sea. At the head of the page, my father noted, the first to set sail was Eärendil, he was never seen again. Okay, so, all uh, right, hang on. 
Uh, so this is confusing because we're only getting it secondhand here. But uh, um, I again, I can't help but notice we're getting in Keladim again here, which strikes me as really interesting. Um, does that mean that in Sketch 1 he's thinking again from an Ocean Club paper's standpoint? And that maybe if this is Raymer, um, uh, if this is Raymer... He's kind of confused about what was happening, right? But James, yes, this does to me also sound like the germ of the story, the germ of the concept of the drowning of Anadune, right? Of the Manish perspective, the 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 further Manish legends uh, of uh, of this history. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So I think that this is. I think that this is. Um, from sketch one. But there is another smaller isle out of sight to the west, and beyond that is a rumor of a great land uninhabited in the west. This island is called Westerness Numenor, the other Erisea. The religion of the Numenorians was simple, a belief in a creator of all, Iluvatar, but he is very remote. Still they offered bloodless sacrifice. His temple was the Pillar of Heaven, a high mountain in the center of the island. They believed Iluvatar to dwell outside the world altogether, but symbolized that by saying he dwelt in high heaven. Added, but they believe he has under him powers, Valar, some at his special command, some residing in the world for its immediate government. Though though these, though good and servants of God, are inexorable and something hostile in a sense. They do not pray to them, but they fear and obey them, if ever any contact occur. Some are Valendili, lovers of the powers. Um, okay. Notice the change in tone here. Notice how much this does not sound like the prose which we were getting in Sketch 2, where Christopher began there. This doesn't sound like that at all. The religion of the Numenorians was simple, a belief in a creator of all, Iluvatar. But he is very remote. Still they offered bloodless sacrifice. Notice how fragmentary that is? This sounds like notes. This I absolutely can believe to be him working out the ideas, right? Him sitting down and saying, okay, all right, let me think through how do the Numenorians look at the world, right? Um... Let me try to... Is is this the very beginning of him saying, okay, not let me change the whole mythology, but let me reorient the whole story, right? I have always told this from the whole concept, from day one, right? From day one, the concept was these are stories received from elves, right? Ariel, the dreamer, right? Ghost and Mariner, son of Arendel, child of Arendel, right, in spirit, goes to... Toleresia uh, meets the elves and they tell him the true story from the elvish, right? Like what the elves know of the history of the world. That's always been the concept of the Silmarillion. So the big change is, again, I think not let's pitch, let's just chuck out the whole mythology, but rather let's rethink it, right? Let me think about the Numenor story, not from within that elvish framework as he had already done with the fall of Numenor, right? Three versions of that. But instead, okay, rethink Numenor from the Numenorian perspective. What are they like? What is their culture? What do they believe? What do they know? And that's, I think, what we can see him 
adding and sketching here. His temple was the pillar of heaven, a high mountain in the center of the island. They believed Iluvatar to dwell outside the world altogether, but symbolized that by saying that he dwelt in high heaven. See, this doesn't sound like narrative. Is it possible that this could still be within a within a a, a Notion Club papers frame? Possibly. But this doesn't sound to me like Raymer or Loudham anymore, right? This sounds to me instead like Tolkien writing notes. But they believe he has under him powers, some in his special command, some residing in the world for its immediate government. These, though good and servants of God, are inexorable. Some are Valendili, he says at the end, right? That, that's like the flow of his notes, right? Um, that sounds like the plot notes that we've read many times. Um, I am perfectly willing to believe that this is him sketching. Now, back to the where seeing him deal with the issues of the flat earth in this context. But they believe the world is flat, and that the lords of the West, gods, dwell beyond the great barrier of cloud hills, where there is no death, and the sun is renewed, and passes under the world to rise again. Struck out, his servants for the governance of the world were Enkeladim and other greater spirits. Added, there were lesser beings, especially associated with living things and with making something called Eldar. These they asked for assistance in need. Some still sailed to Eresea, in margin Elendili. So we've got the Valendili and the Elendili, right? Notice how Notion Club papers that is. Notice how Lost Road that is, right? But the most did not, and except among the wise, the theory arose that the great spirits or gods, not a Luvatar, dwelt in the west in a great land beyond the sun. Bracketed, the Enkeladim told them that the world was round, but that was a hard saying to them. Some of their great mariners tried to find out. Again, this is not the tone of narrative. This is not the tone, uh, uh, this is not the style of the drowning of Anadune. Sketch 2 is, right? At least working towards that style. Um, this is not. Um, so, he begins if this is the beginning indeed, which it kind of sounds like, he begins with the idea that they believe that the world is flat. So, if that's true, if this is the beginning, the notes and the seed, therefore, of the drowning of anagenic um, concept and story, then notice what follows. The round world thing. It's the Notion Club papers. It's the Notion Club papers that is messing with the flat earth, with the world become round, right? He had that explicitly, authoritatively. It was part of the mythology that the world was flat and then the world is made round at the drowning of Numenor, that that's like Iluvatar's response to the invasion of the Numenorians, right? Is he's going to make the world round. That was not a theory. That was not, a, you know, it was part of the mythology. But, uh, but when he comes at this from the Notion Club paper's perspective, now from the beginning, the world is round. 
they believe the world is flat. You know, that the lords of the West dwell beyond the great barrier of cloud hills, like as if like off in the literal West, there's like a barrier and then the gods dwell in a land on the other side of that. And over there, there's no death. Oh, and the sun like passes beneath the world to rise again. <laughs> I mean, come on, suckers. They believe that, right? Except that was the mythology, right? That was the authoritative mythology back in the day. But, you know, we've talked about the connection with our world, right? And I'm beginning to think that perhaps the Notion Club papers itself, the Notion Club papers, the pseudo-inklings meeting, right, taking place in Oxford in the 1980s, um, that that is the reconnection with our world, the, the kind of this new touch point with our world, which is making the flat world, the flat earth concept completely untenable to him. Right. Um, Raymer and Loudham and Jeremy are time traveling. They're experiencing this, right? They are, I mean, Loudham is like personally the link between our modern world, right? Modern England, future England, in fact. Um, no, past now, but future then, right? Future England and Numenor. So the world has to be really round because it's our world and our world is really round. And so clearly Loudham and Raymer and everybody aren't going to be discovering that like, oh, I, like the world used to be flat and then it was made round, right? That can't happen. So my theory here is that the Notion Club papers, this is just my theory, but my theory is that the Notion Club papers and it's and it's the way that it is kind of bringing out the Numenorean story provides a new anchoring of his mythological world in our world. It had started to drift from the old days when they were completely together. It had started to drift apart as if it were just a subcreation, just a fantasy world. Right. Um, there's not no memory of that. There, you know, he never totally abandoned that link. But it had been drifting away, and it wouldn't have been difficult for him to cut the cord that tethered them still together. But then the Notion Club papers happens, and he instead ties the cord more closely together, right? That seems to end result. Flat world crisis seems to be the result. Um yeah, Kimber says uh, the Notion Club Papers is about Numenor intruding into the modern world, but for Tolkien it functioned uh, uh, to have facts of the modern world intrude back into his mythology. It bleeds in both directions. Yeah, Kimber, that seems to be exactly it. It seems to be exactly it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Brian says uh, he also has the theory that some of the tension between Raymer's modern world and the existing mythology is what sunk the Notion Club papers idea in the end. Quite possibly. Yeah. That in the end, that that need to reconcile them perfectly. Right. I mean, for them to be completely happy with each other. Right. Um, uh, made in the is perhaps one of the things that contributed to making the Notion Club papers so difficult to complete. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, quite possibly. 
Okay, still in sketch one here. They lived to a great age, 200 years or more, but all the more longed for longer life. They envied the Enkeladim. They grew mighty in shipbuilding and began to adventure to sea. Some try to reach the west beyond Eresea, but fail to return. The pillar of heaven is neglected by all but a few. The kings build great houses. The custom of sending their bodies adrift to the sea in an east wind grows up. The east wind begins to symbolize death. Some sail back to the dark lands. There they are greeted with awe, for they are very tall, something or other. They teach true religion, but are treated as gods. Sauron comes into being. He cannot prevail in arms against the Numenorians, who now have many fortresses in the west. Okay. Um, this is coming together, right? Notice that it's less fragmentary. Um, is there, are there any sentence fragments? I don't think so. He stopped doing sentence fragments as he so often does in his notes, right? But notice it's still clipped like it was before. There is none of the, again, just glance back for a second at the, um, uh, the, the flow, right? A mariner arose in that time who was called Aarendel, and he was king of men upon the west shore of the great sea in the north of the world. He reported that once taken by a great wind, he had been borne far out of his course, and had indeed seen many islands in the regions of the setting sun, and one most most remote, from which there came a scent as of gardens of fair flowers. Hear the cadence of those sentences, right? Hear how different that is from the pillar of heaven is neglected by all but a few. The kings build great houses. The customs of sending their bodies adrift to sea in an east wind grows up. The east wind begins to symbolize death. Right? Hear that? It's just, um, it's just nothing like, right? This is still notes doing what it always does, right? Moving towards polished prose, right? Even to the point where eventually dialogue starts to spring up and stuff, but, but still note-like, right? This, I think, is still something like an outline, still something like him fleshing out these ideas. He's still using Enkeladim for the elves, which still makes me think, as is no surprise, right? He's come to this from the Notion Club papers. And remember that the points where Christopher is dating the different drafts of the Drowning of Anadune within the context of the Notion Club papers, right? how he kept going back and forth between them. He stops writing the Notion Club papers at one point and writes the first version of the Drowning of Anadune, then returns, right? Rewrites some, writes more, and then goes back and writes the second version of the Drowning of Anadune, right? Um, when the first part comes up was right after the f- beginning. So part two. Part one remembers the Long Raymer discussion. That's when the word Enkeladim is first used. Right. Then part two happens and he's like he does the beginning of part two where Laudum begins his thing. Right. His, you know, has his first little like Numenorean episode. Right. And then he writes the drowning of Anadune and then he comes back. Right. And he continues it. Right. So um, it's therefore less surprising to me that Enkeladim is being used here if this is at the beginning of that because he's just come from Raymer's stuff. Right. In part one of the Notion Club papers. And so he still seems to be, um, he still seems to be linking uh, back to that. Again, this is, doesn't sound like it's in Raymer's voice, but this, uh, he seems to be thinking from within that frame. Okay. Now we get sketch three. And this is the last thing we're going to do, is sketch three. 
There was war between the powers and Melico. The second war. The first had been in the making of the world, before elves and men were. Woo. Hang on. Right? Um, nowhere in the drowning of Anadune was that much knowledge ever had. There was war between the powers and Melico. The second war, the first had been in the making of the world before elves and men were. Oh, so that's drawing on the Quintus Silmarillion material. Directly. Okay, interesting. Um, the, and the, we're calling them elves, by the way. Okay. Though all men had fallen, not all remained enslaved. Some repented, rebelled against Melico, and made friends of the Eldar, and tried to be loyal to God. They had no worship but to offer first fruits to Eru on high places. They were not wholly happy, as Eru seemed far off, and they dared not pray to him direct, so they regarded the Valar as gods, and so were often corrupted and deceived by Melico, taking him or his servants or phantoms for gods. But in the war against the seats of Melico in the north, there were three kindreds of good men, sons of God, Eru Hildi, who were wholly faithful and never sided with Melico. Among these there was Eärendil, and he was alone of men, partly of the kindred of the Elidai. Whoa, he's half-elven again! And he became the first of men to sail upon the sea in the days of the Second War, when men and the remaining Elidai were hard-pressed, he set sail west. He said, I shall not return. If I fail, you, if I fail, you will hear no more of me. If I do not fail, a new star will arise in the west. He came to Eresi and spoke the embassy of the two kindreds before the chief of the Valar, and they were moved. But Eärendil was not suffered to return among living men, and his vessel was set to rise in the sky as a sign that his message was accepted. And elves and men saw it, and believed help would come, and were enheartened. And the powers came, and aided elves and men to overthrow Melico, and his body, bodily shape was destroyed, and his spirit vanished. Whoa. Okay. This third sketch is totally different, right? This sounds like an almost complete integration of the Quintus Silmarillion slash Fall of Numenor tradition and the Drowning of Anadune tradition, right? We're still using Elidai at times and Melico instead of Melkor, right? Or Melko. Or Morgoth, right? Um, and yet, this embraces almost like... There's almost no change here, right? There's almost no change from the... Um, from the. There's almost no inconsistencies with the Quintus Silmarillion tradition. It's still a different perspective, right? But um, it's consistent. This is like accurate history, where the other is not. Okay. A little further... But in the meanwhile, evil had been at work already in the hearts of the Numenorians, for the desire of everlasting life and to escape death grew ever stronger upon them, and they murmured against the prohibition that excluded them from Eresse, and the powers were displeased with them, and they forbade them now even to land upon the island. At this time of estrangement from Elidai and Valai, Tarkalian hearing of Sauron, determined without counsel of Eldar or Valar, to demand the allegiance and homage of Sauron. Numenor cast down. 
Eresse and the Eladai removed from the world save in memory and the world delivered to men. Men of Numenorean blood could still see Eresse as a mirage on a straight road leading thither. Notice the names. Elidai, Valei, Tarkalian, Sauron. Remember, Tarkalian and Sauron were the early versions, right? Tarkalian was the name of the king in the Notion Club papers, right? In Laudum's first, remember the parallel, Adunayak, uh, uh, you know, the uh, Avalonian and, and Numenorean languages, right? Um, Tarkalian was his name. Sauron is what he was called in the first version. Um, uh, I'm pretty sure in the first version of the Drowning of Anadunai. It was only after the full Adunayic version came in that he began to be called Zigor, right? So this sounds like it's still early, but we have here still a much more full um, integration of the two things. So again, what is this text? What are we getting here? What are we seeing? This sounds like, again, still a Numenorean perspective, but not ignorant, not detached. As if the other one, the Sketch 2 version, right? Sketch 1 seems to be just notes, right? Tolkien working out this idea, what do the Numenorians think, what do they know, what do they believe, right? Uh, then, sketch two is the seed of the drowning of Anaduna, right? Let's do the Manish version in which they really don't understand the history, right? This is from within the sphere of their knowledge and what they've retained over the years. This seems to be a version similar in kind, but not ignorant, right? Like, in touch with what really happened. Okay. The ancient Numenorians knew, being taught by the Elidai, that the earth was round. But Sauron taught them that it was a disc and flat, and beyond was nothing where his master ruled. So, the idea of the flat earth being a lie of Sauron now comes in. And, again, the Numenorians and the elves, obviously, know about the roundness of the earth from the beginning. But he said that beyond Arese was a land in the utter west where the god dwelt in bliss. I don't know if that's supposed to be singular or plural. And usurped the good things of the earth, and that it was his mission to bring men to that promised land and overthrow the greedy and idle powers. And Tarkalian believed him, being hungry for life undying. And the Numenorians, after the downfall, still spoke of the straight road that ran on when the earth was bent. But the good ones, those that fled from Numenor and took no part in the war on Arese, used this only in symbol. For that which is beyond Arese, they meant the world of eternity and the spirit in the region of Iluvatar. So the exiles, according to this, don't believe in a literal straight road. It's a symbol. They only use it in symbol. That which is beyond Arese means only the world of eternity and the spirit, the region of Iluvatar. So they still are, but they are not part of our world. Okay, it's plural in the text, James. I figured it was from the context where the gods dwelt in bliss. 
Okay. Um, yeah, I knew that either that had to be plural or the director or the, the, um, um, the article, the, is an error. And leaving off the plural is the more likely error. Uh, okay. Um, notice the trend again at the end. The Numenorians, even the Numenorian exiles now, are being characterized not as ignorant, but as knowing, right? Um, not as believing that the wor- or worth was once flat. They always knew it was round. At least, you know, they were told by the elves and believed it. Um, and only Sauron's lies reasserted the flatness of the world. Nor believing that they can actually sail off into the sky and get to the West, right? Um, they only talk about that in symbol. So, what's happening in these two texts, right? Um, here's Christopher. I conclude, therefore, that the marked differences in the, pre- in the preliminary sketches reflect my father's shifting ideas of what the Manish tradition might be and how to present it. He was sketching, rapidly, possible modes in which the memory and the forgetfulness of men in Middle-earth, descendants of the exiles in Numenor, might have transformed their early history. Right, So that the difference between two and three is, do we want the more ignorant version or do we want the less ignorant version? How close should it be sticking to the, um, the old mythology, the elvish mythology, which is kind of the true story, right? Um, so we see two different versions. And, you know, we even have the notes in which uh, Tolkien might imply that the one, you know, was like by the exiles in Middle-earth who are in decline, and the other is by the Dúnedain who are still in contact with elves in Middle-earth, right? And so they've not forgotten all this stuff because they've heard again all of these legends from the elves, right? Like from Elrond and Gilgalad, right? So uh, so they haven't forgotten, right? Um, I This, again to me solidifies the idea that these sketches predate the drowning of Anadune, right? And that he decides essentially for sketch two. He decides against sketch three. And he decides instead to widen the gap, the the apparent gap, between the Manish perception, the Manish tradition, right, of Numenor, and the true story the real uh, story from his mythology. So you can see how I certainly don't think that he's pitched it really any of his mythology other than potentially the flat earth question. Right. Um, uh, but we can see him kind of thinking this through. Final reflections. Meanwhile, Numenor was grown in wealth, wisdom, and glory under its line of great Kings of long life, directly descended from Elros Arendel's son, brother of Elrond. The downfall of Numenor, the second fall of man, or man rehabilitated but still mortal, brings on the catastrophic end not only of the Second Age, but of the Old World, the primeval world of legend envisaged as flat and bounded. After which the Third Age began, a twilight age, a medium ivum, 
the first of the broken and changed world, the last of the lingering dominion of fully of visible, fully, fully incarnate elves, and the last. Uh, sorry. Um, uh, I'm not sure what that word is. Um, last something in which evil assumes a single dominant incarnate shape. The downfall is partly the result of an inner weakness in men, consequent, if you will, upon the first fall, unrecorded in these tales, repented but not fully healed. Reward on earth is more dangerous for men than punishment. The fall is achieved by the cunning of Sauron in exploiting this weakness. It is Its central theme is inevitably, I think, in a story of men, a ban or prohibition. This is, of course, Tolkien from uh, his letter to Milton Waldman in 1951. Um, so this is Tolkien five years later, right, reflecting back on Numenor, looking at this, the whole picture, right? Um, the last also in which, okay, right, great. The last also in which evil assumes a single dominant incarnate shape. Okay. So again, this is Tolkien um, reflecting back. He's finished writing The Lord of the Rings now. The letter to to Milton Waldman is salesmanship, right? He's trying to to give Milton Waldman his new publisher, whom he's hoping will be his new publisher, um, uh, you know, a shortish version of his story to try to convince him that he really wants to publish The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion together in four books. This is Tolkien's project that he's writing to Milton Waldman about. Um, so this is his later reflections on it. Um, the way that he begins, so we see him bringing through here some of his, um, uh, the kind of the theological stuff that he put in those initial sketches, right? In his initial ideas. This is him as author authoritatively explaining stuff, right? The downfall is partly the result of an inner weakness in men, consequent, if you will, upon the first fall, unrecorded in these tales, repented, but not finally healed. Reward on earth is more dangerous for men than punishment. The fall is achieved by the cunning of Sauron in exploiting this weakness. Its central theme is inevitably, I think, in a story of men, a ban or prohibition. Um, So here he's talking about, like, the spiritual significance of the story, right? What we can see happening in Numenor. What is the kind of the essence of the fall of Numenor story? The second fall of man, as he calls it in the paragraph before, right? Um... I love his characterization of the um, of the second and third ages, right? Because, um, of course, in the letter to Milton Waldman, he's giving a big overview of everything, first, second, and third age. Um, the catastrophic end, not only of the second age, but of the old world, the primeval world of legend envisaged as flat and bounded, after which the Third Age began, a twilight age, a medium ivum, the first of the broken and changed world, the last of the lingering dominion of visible, fully incarnate elves. 
and the last also, in which evil assumes a single dominant incarnate shape. The world doesn't work like this anymore, right? This is Tolkien talking about his world, his created world. Again, he's done with the, he's finished the Lord of the Rings now. His vision of the first age, second age, third age, and beyond is complete now. Um, five years before, he was still working all of that out. Notice that the word envisaged is a little bit uncertain, um, but I believe it means envisaged within his mythology as flat and bounded. That the primeval world of legend was flat and bounded and made round. So his crisis about the uh, roundness of the world seems to be resolved by then, right? Um, yeah. So that'll be interesting to see as we move forward. Um, so anyway, I wanted to end on this reflection back by Tolkien over this because we can see we can see where he's going to get to in his view of things. We can see you know some interesting similarities and differences you know we we see him we still we've just been looking at him working all this stuff out the 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 second age is really coming into place right um the his working of the atlantis myth into his mythology is now pretty close to complete but he still doesn't have the whole full picture we can still see him kind of wondering and trying to figure out how it all really works together. The, the Notion Club paper seems to me the pivotal point, right? It's the Notion Club papers where this stuff, where, where the Atlantis story comes out and when the sort of the texture of the Numenorean story and, of course, significantly the Adonaic language emerges, right, and comes to him. And from then, he can see much more clearly Numenor, the idea of which came out back when he was doing The Lost Road and has been fully realized as he's doing the Notion Club papers. So, although the Notion Club papers are never going to get finished, right? And although the Drowning of Anadune kind of remains this, like, weird sort of isolated thing, which is going to get, you know, partially integrated into the Akalabeth eventually, um, we can see, I think, in this passage, the sort of conclusion of this period, right? As he, five years from the time of our discussions, you know, throughout this book, um, five years later, he's going to be able to put all of this together and see and explain the whole big picture. That's not to say that um, his ideas are going to never change again, right? And not continue to develop in any way. Um, But we can see how much further forward he is. So, in conclusion... Don't weep for the Notion Club papers. It would have been really cool to have the whole Notion Club papers written. That would be awesome to read. And yet, it's we can see that the Notion Club papers in the end were not just a distraction from the Lord of the Rings, nor were they just a you know futile, an idea that fizzled out and ended up going nowhere. It did go somewhere, right? And the entire shape of the history of Middle-earth is much, much clearer because of the work he did here in the Notion Club papers uh, and the Drowning of Anadune. And with that, 
my friends. We are done with Sauron Defeated, as I promised. I only kept you a little bit extra, not too bad. Um, so we're going to be off for two weeks. For those of you who are following along live, we'll be off for two weeks. We shall return on the 6th of November when we will be starting A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin. So I hope that you guys will um, uh, will enjoy um, uh, uh, joining me for that. Uh, and we'll be doing the Wizard of Earthsea for a couple months at least. Uh, and then sometime around the first part of the year in 2020, we shall return to the history of Middle-earth to Morgoth's Ring, which I think I share this in common with several of you. I have been counting down the books to Morgoth's Ring uh, for some time. Morgoth's Ring contains some of, of the most exciting stuff, uh, certainly in the second half uh, of uh, the history of Middle-earth. So um, I look forward to that. Um, yeah, so Bruce, no, we are having Exploring the Lord of the Rings next week, but then I'll be off the week after that too. So no broadcast at all on like the week of Halloween. Basically, I'm going to be away. Um, but... Um, uh, but anyway, we will, so we have two weeks off from, uh, Mythgard Academy and we're only the one week off from exploring the Lord of the Rings. So yeah, that, thanks for clarifying that. Okay. Um, I'll be in a sugar coma That may or may not happen. I'm actually going to be, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going on a little getaway with my wife that week. I'm very excited. Um, my wife has to go to a conference, a professional conference, uh, and I'm getting to accompany her. Uh, so uh, the two of us are getting away that week. So I'm not going to be broadcasting that week. Um, so anyway, yeah, no, that's going to be good. But I'll be back in November, uh, first week of November, first full week of November, and we'll uh, we'll be back then. Exciting things happening. Beginning with the Wizard of Earthsea, having my crossover episode with the Prancing Pony guys uh, on uh, Exploring the Lord of the Rings. It'll be a big week. All right. Thank you, everybody. Good night. Thank you for joining me for Sound Defeated. See you soon for our next uh, our next discussion. Bye now.